Hi, this is Gary Meese with The Case Against. I'm going to be doing so something a little different this time. And I'm not talking about the West Memphis 3 case. That's all you tune in for. You're not interested in anything else. You might want to skip this. Uh, but I'm going to be talking about uh, and I'm going to be doing more of this in the future, um, an HBO documentary. And uh, the question that should occur to the more thoughtful viewer is voiced aloud in HBO's Who Killed Garrett Phillips? And no, the question in the title which seems to suggest that this was a deep mystery, perhaps beyond solving, that, that's not the question we're talking about. The murder case is not unsolvable, though justice is elusive at this point. No, the question is poised as to whether the case of oral Nick Hillary would ever have attracted national attention if he wasn't black and the sole suspect in a murder that occurred in a community that is 90% white? The answer to that question is easy. If Hillary was white, the murder would be written off as yet another murder committed by a spurned boyfriend, which would be, would be as generic a killing as could be imagined, except that uh, Hillary was accused of exacting vengeance on the girlfriend's 12-year-old son and not the girlfriend herself. <coughs> but in the style of the killing, the motive, questionable al alibi, the tight time frame, and the rationale for media attention, the Hillary case bears much resemblance to that of Adnan Syed. Syed, like Hillary, being <coughs> a personable minority who knows how to sweet-talk filmmakers and podcasters. If either man was white, he would be serving out his time in utter media silence, along with all the other men, white, black, brown, and otherwise, who irrationally killed on the heels of a romantic breakup. The centerpiece of the film is not who killed Garrett Phillips, that's the name of the 12-year-old boy, but how we're supposed to mildly accede to the idea that Nick Henry was not the killer, but not because of facts, it's because he's black. There's nothing subtle about the propaganda being fed to the viewer. Defense figures talking about lynching the no-doubt elusive footage of a Confederate flag in upstate New York, the overfly footage with ominous soundtracks straight from the Paradise Lost playbook suggesting small town equals malevolent force. Get the message? Evil whites conspired against this poor, innocent fellow just because of his race. Garrett Phillips was strangled to death on... October 24th, 2011, shortly after arriving home in his family's apartment in Potsdam, 
Potsdam, New York, his death struggle was heard by neighbors who called the police. An officer arrived quickly on the scene, heard noises inside the apartment, but had to wait a few minutes for the landlord to arrive with the key. Excuse me a second. A dying garret was found on the floor. A screen on a second floor window had been busted out and there were large cracks and paving stones below indicating the assailant had jumped out the window. Suspicion quickly centered on Nick Henry who had recently broken up with Garrett's mother, Tandy Cyrus, after a year-long relationship. Uh, Tandy Cyrus, an attractive young widow, was white and it suggested that her interracial relationship with the Jamaican soccer coach at Clarkson University was not viewed approvingly by all in the community. Now, that's undoubtedly true, but it's also undoubtedly unremarkable. This situation prompted such headlines as this gem from a Syracuse, New York webpage HBO reveals shocking racism after North Country Boy's murder. Shocking racism. One might expect surreptitiously recorded tapes of police tossing about the N-word or a prosecutor attending Klan meetings. In fact, there was little to no overt racism expressed in the documentary. One interviewee admits to not hanging out with black people, which is obviously that's extremely racist in a 90% white town. But presuming an obvious street name, G-Money, just might be a black guy. Uh, and G-Money does turn out to be a black guy, just as you would expect. Pretty shocking. Huh? And... Uh, Oh, so, so racist. A witness during a private phone call, private, it was a private phone call with his girlfriend that she recorded, says a figure in the window at the crime scene was, quote, too effing black to be identified. Shocking. Racist. I guess sensibilities are tender in Syracuse. Potsdam, which is in far upstate New York, it's really very close to Canada, is a town of about 15,000. It's about 90% white with a black population in the 2000 census at 1.59%. Would uh, black Nick Henry stand out among the average populace? No doubt. But does that make that populace racist? You would think not, but then again, they're 90% white, and so they are de facto racist. And here's a quote from the filmmaker, Liz Garbus. She was talking to Variety about the documentary. We did hear these rumors, and we wanted as much as we could to go out and explore them and accompany local journalists. 
But there was really so little to go on. There really was nothing beyond what's in the film that we were able to learn. Huh. Okay, that's her quote. So the initial inspiration for the film was the unspecified rumors that she mentions, but the filmmaker was apparently unable to substantiate any of these rumors. In fact, she had, delivers very little new information of any sort. She goes on to say, uh, from the police's standpoint point of view, from the police's point of view, they thought they had the best suspect, the most they could put together on someone. But you can't take race out of the picture. The way in which white Americans are just more likely to look at black people as capable of committing crimes. The issues around race and policing and prosecutorial misconduct have been huge issues across our nation, and that was the tunnel vision. In other words, race is in the picture because the most likely suspect, the only credible suspect, is black. And just because he's the best suspect, because he's black, you can't take race out of the picture because he's black. If you haven't figured that out yet. Uh, but let's go into this a little bit more. Uh, crime statistics, which are easily accessed from governmental websites, will show that black people commit a vastly disproportionate amount of violent crime. In other words, a lot more black people are arrested for violent crimes proportionately to the, their share of the population than white people. Now, there's two ways to looking at the two, at least two ways of looking at this. One is that they're being unfairly arrested and prosecuted for committing crimes while white people are being allowed to get away with a vastly disproportionate amount of violent crimes they're committing that they're simply not being prosecuted for. That's one way of looking at it. And the other way of looking at it is blacks are committing disproportionately a lot more violent crimes than white people. And if Liz Garbus's concern is that white Americans are just more likely to look at black people as capable of committing crimes, maybe the problem isn't the white people. Maybe it's the black people who are committing the crimes and not the white people who are correctly perceiving what the problem is. But white people, white Americans apparently are evil for noticing this fact, which could, should be obvious not only from crime stats, but from simply watching a newscast in a major metropolitan area on a regular basis. So who has the tunnel vision? I mean, she mentions tunnel vision. Who has the tunnel vision? Not the police, not white Americans. Liz Garbus has tunnel vision. Who else has tunnel vision? The staff of the Daily Beast, which headlined its review as the curious case of a black man wanted for murdering a white child in small town America. Is such a circumstance so unthinkable? While the case of Garrett Phillips is unusual because the victim was a child and not the ex-girlfriend or girlfriend's mother or girlfriend and her sister or girlfriend and her mother or 
whatever that we see in news reports all the time. Uh, black on white crime is by no means unusual, as I've already noted, and vastly outweighs white on black crime. So what makes this case so curious? I don't really know. The review calls the documentary, quote, a stunning and enraging examination of race and the U.S. criminal justice system. It's simply not. It's a stunning and enraging example of how the wrongful conviction movement will latch on to a case for reasons having nothing to do with the facts at hand and then go on to milk sentiment from viewers with abandon. The movie says nothing particularly interesting about race rather than the obvious fact that black suspects are prone to play the race card and reveals, surprise, surprise, that the criminal justice system is imperfect. And by the way, the guilty should be grateful that the criminal justice system is imperfect. Since the errors of the criminal justice system make it easier for killers to beat the rap initially or went out on appeal in many, many cases. In other words, they can kill somebody and still walk on the basis of some sort of error committed by the criminal justice system. And in fact, this almost happens in this case. Uh, Garbus does give lip service to the pretense of object objectivity over the course of her two-part 186-minute deep dive into the case, but let there be no doubt about her attitude toward Nick Hillary. As she told the New York Daily News, nothing is ever 100%, but Nick is a highly decent, lovely person. Hold on a second. I'm just, I, excuse me, I was doing a little bit of a technical check here. Just making sure this thing's recording. With highly decent, lovely person with no sign of a temper and no weird evasions. Garbus claims she entered the case with an open mind. <laughs> On the basis of a bunch of rumors that she won't even exactly explain what these rumors were. And she was unable to find if there was, she didn't find any substance to these rumors, apparently, because she certainly doesn't reveal any substance to these rumors. But also says that race, the race issue prompted her interest. So much for, anyway, so much for her open mind. She may have the pretense of an open mind, but she does not have an open mind. She's not objective. She's got an agenda. And um, Hillary's only described as a lovely person because he's black. He's really not that lovely, coming across as a not-too-bright control freak prone to weird evasions. But, you know, yes, he's black, and therefore apparently inherently highly decent and lovely. Uh, and many do remark upon Hillary's likable, seemingly harmless persona as if likable, seemingly harmless personas were not intrinsic to the mask of sanity displayed by sociopaths. Uh, Hillary's mask slips often, in this viewer's opinion, 
Garbus dwells, Garbus dwells extensively on Hillary's interactions with his own children. There's many, you know, it seems like many minutes of footage of him, you know, putting his boys to bed, getting them breakfast, whatever. It's, maybe it's not that much, but it just seems like an awful lot. Uh, and there, particularly there's a couple of young boys there, but it's it's not really, there's, all sorts of kids sort of wandering in and out of this household, and it's really hard to tell what's what or who's who. Uh, obviously, he's got a couple of young sons. I'm not sure who the... And he's got an older daughter who figures into the case. I'm not sure who some of the other characters are in this in this household. Uh, his domestic, Hillary's domestic relations with his ex-wife were apparently volatile, but are lightly touched upon here. His domestic situation with him and a major mom, major dad role after losing his coaching job uh, is never made clear. Uh, Hillary did not get along with Garrett Phillips because Garrett resisted Hillary's efforts at control. And uh, those efforts included such measures as banning television on school nights which is not something that's going to go over well with a 12-year-old boy, particularly when you're not his father, you're not married to his mother, and you've decided you're going to come in and straighten him out. just doesn't go over that well. Hillary's insistence on tough discipline and the boy's understandable resentment toward this would-be father figure were indisputably at the core of the breakup, uh, and this is well documented in the film, there's no evidence that anyone else had anything like a motive to kill Garrett. Nick Hillary had the means, the motive, and the opportunity to commit the murder. Whatever his claims to the contrary, his conflicts with Garrett were the direct cause of Tandy Cyrus ending the relationship with Hillary just weeks before the murder. Initial reports uh, after the killing prompted speculation that Garrett had been involved in some horseplay that got out of hand with some other kids that led to the death. But Garrett was filmed skateboarding by himself shortly before he arrived home. For horseplay to have been involved, it would have, and he was doing so by, he was by himself, he was alone, there were no other boys with him. So for horseplay to have been involved, it would have had to have started immediately upon Garrett's arrival home, and uh, and it would have had to have proceeded to his death within just a matter of minutes. To say that that seems unlikely is an, un, an understatement. He died by strangulation, which requires more strength than most young boys would have. And what kind of horseplay results in fatal strangulation? A choking game, perhaps. We'll concede this, but again, strangulation requires strength and will far outside the scope of a preteen choking game. Hillary is fit, a strong, grown athlete who could easily overwhelm a child. Some of the more problematic aspects of the police investigation involve his initial interview with police. Uh, as the recent ex-boyfriend of the victim's mother who had a contentious relationship with the boy, police would have been re remiss in not talking to Henry. 
In other words, there's no, there's sort of this idea that it's outrageous they're even talking to this guy. It's not, There's nothing outrageous at all about talking to the ex-boyfriend of the dead child's mother with whom he had this volatile relationship. And it's been just weeks after the breakup. And the wounds are still fresh, so to speak, from the, the breakup even though Hillary says there's no wounds. Uh, as the recent ex-boy, uh, you know, Henry could have left at virtually any point in the interview until the very end, but he stayed while often refusing to answer simple questions. Ultimately, which again is his, some more of his weird evasions, ultimately by the time he chose to leave he was forced to stay in the interrogation room so police could do a body search and collect physical evidence the full body strip search was filmed but it wasn't filmed so it could be included later in a documentary uh, and it was not usual but this was not a usual crime in the small town of potsdam new york and honestly, it's not a usual crime anyplace else for the 12-year-old son of an ex-girlfriend to be murdered. Doesn't happen that much. Now, the girlfriend, as I've said, it's not unusual for the ex-girlfriend to get murdered. And I'm not, I'm not by no means condoning that. I'm just saying it happens all the time. Uh, the, but the police had no way of determining if Henry had a wound or a mark somewhere on his body without a full body search. <coughs> the filmmaker's inclusion of a nude shot is deliberately provocative, seeming to ca uh, cast a light on these humiliating circumstances, when in fact the public humiliation comes from the choice to include the footage of this strip search in this documentary appearing on HBO. Uh, Henry denied any wounds or abrasions to police, but you know, when they got the strip search done, they found a significant abrasion on his ankle and he attributed the wound to having moved furniture. Uh, police skepticism of his explanation was wholly justified. But considering the the killer had made a leap from a window, and in, in, in theory could have injured himself doing so, likely would have injured himself doing so. It was a second story window, and uh, and then Hillary had denied having any sort of wound when, you know, it's, it's, it's a significant abrasion on the, uh, the ankle. It's not just a little tiny scratch. So he's lying to police. It doesn't really go over well when you do that. Uh, and Hillary had been observed limping at a soccer game shortly after the killing. Now there's some jerky film footage from that event. And because it's jerky and Limp, limping is somewhat jerky and it's uh, limping is jerky 
So you got jerky film footage and you got limping, which is jerky. It's a little hard to tell from the film footage whether he's actually limping or not. He looks like he's limping to me, but if you hadn't suggested that he might be limping, I probably wouldn't think anything about his gait at all. It's certainly best described as inconclusive. Um, Hillary's clothes were confiscated and he was sent home in what he describes as a hazmat suit. I have to say this was a little weird, but I, you know, it's within the, it's within the bounds of a proper police investigation. While it's unlikely that he had worn the same clothes from the crime scene to the police interview, it's certainly possible if the police had chosen to send him home in his own clothes, they would have been passing up a sole opportunity to collect potential evidence. And, you know, we're in an era where forensic evidence has taken on increasing importance in bringing about arrests and convictions. So a person's of, person of interest concerns about this supposed humiliation, you know, and must take a backseat to effective investigation. And, you know, no doubt having his clothes confiscated was distressing. No doubt. Sure, he didn't like that one bit. Hasmat suit didn't fit him that well either, apparently. Um, ultimately, the strongest evidence against Hillary was circumstantial, as is true in most criminal cases. Garrett Phillips was caught on camera skateboarding past the school just minutes before he was killed. The same camera caught a vehicle resembling Nick Hillary's leaving the parking lot just seconds after Garrett and heading in the same direction as Garrett. The prosecution theory was that Hillary followed him home, but identification of the car as Hillary's only came after he was deposed in a civil suit he filed over his initial interview with police. So Hillary, in challenging the investigation through this civil suit, you know, that they were picking on him, so he's going to sue them. And what he ended up doing was actually supplying the prosecution with the crucial identification of the car as his his, and with himself as the driver of this car that was leaving the parking lot in the same direction as the soon-to-be-killed child uh, just seconds after Garrett left that parking lot. Now, among Hillary's weird evasions was his claim that he was headed home. All while admitting that he turned in the wrong direction to be headed home, but in the right direction to follow Garrett to his home. That's not a powerful case for the prosecution. Consider that the West Memphis Three case had eyewitness sightings, confessions, failed alibis, failed polygraphs, etc. working against them, and conviction seemed by no means a sure thing there. We could go through many other cases where there was more evidence than what they've got here, and they Either they convicted someone or failed to convict someone. Tandy Cyrus's former boyfriend, John Jones, a sheriff's deputy, got gets served up as the good old alternative suspect, a la Terry Hobbs or John Mark Byers on the West Memphis Three case. Uh, yeah, again, this is a standard go-to thing for these documentary, these fake documentarians. Um, because, uh, you know, just simply presenting the actual facts of the case or 
just simply too simple. But, you know, John Jones does have his sketchy moments. But, you know, he also has the lack of a credible motive. And he was caught on video cam walking his dog just prior to the killings. <coughs> the killing. Um, uh, you know, but it all really came down to Hillary being caught on tape, not Jones. I mean, there's no reason to think Jones had any incentive whatsoever to kill Garrett Phillips. Not That's not the case with Nick Hillary. And in fact, John Jones was good friends, continued to be good friends with Tandy Cyrus, his ex-girlfriend, and uh, spent the evening of the killing. He was over, he, he spent, basically spent the night over at her house making sure she was okay after after the body was discovered and, and was... And it's 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 a little weird, I'll have to say, but you know he holds her hand during the inter the police interview her the next day about the circumstances, and he's holding her hand the whole time. But this is not over her objections. This is her wishes. This is the mother of a dead child. Police are bending over backwards to help her adjust and comfort her as best she can, and apparently she found the presence of John Jones to be a comfort and a help. In retrospect, it wasn't such a grand idea as the police readily admit. But we have the the videotape. It's not grand evidence, but it's good old circumstantial evidence. And then the prospect came up that cranked up the old CSI effect. A new DA sampling technique linked a tiny sample found under Garrett's fingernails to Nick Hillary. And, and this turns out to be another example in which the gold stand for evidence, DNA, becomes less golden when the, D, the defense lawyers are confronted with it. The DNA, which is a tiny sample tested under a new high, newer high-tech sampling software known as STR-MIX, ultimate was ruled not admissible in this case, with the judge citing the small size of the sample, And STR mix was specifically set up to be able to get credible results from tiny, tiny samples. So the small sample is, the smallness of the sample is, I'm not sure what the right term for this is. It's, if, if, if the sample were larger, they wouldn't be using STR mix. So I, I, why, why the judge finds the smallest of the sample to be the problem is very questionable. But uh, And the sample had been tested by one of the originators of the software. Uh, they were based in New Zealand using procedures not validated by the New York Crime Lab. Now, this is a case where they didn't, the New York Crime Lab wasn't set up to deal with this particular uh, DNA evidence. Uh, they weren't prepared to, apparently they weren't prepared to validate for the procedures. 
So the DNA was not ruled not admissible in court. And there had been previous DNA testing. It, it had re resulted from mixed samples from which Nick Hillary could not be conclusively ruled out or included. The prosecution, based on the STR mix, had said Hillary would have been one of eight people, statistically speaking, in the country whose DNA would match. And that's pretty incriminating, and it's enough for me to settle any doubts I might have about, might have had about who's actually really guilty here, but that's, you know, I'm not the court of law. Hillary lucked up with that mean old racist justice system once again, and the wrongly accused innocent black man dodged the DNA problem. He's a very lucky fellow. Defense lawyers at the trial also came up with a convicted incarcerated rapist named Gregory Brown, who claimed he had seen John Jones Jr. enter the apartment building where the killing occurred shortly before the murder. Shades of the two incarcerated rapists who concocted the West Memphis Three poor, Four Perp narrative back in 2013, this story from Gregory Brown proved a boon for the defense, but not because of the veracity of Brown's allegations, but because prosecutor Mary Rain had improperly withheld a statement, the statement from Brown because she didn't take his claim seriously. Brown was not called to testify, but the pro and they, the defense did talk to him and decided not to call him to the stand, but the prosecution risked a Brady violation and mistrial by its failure to hand over potentially exculpatory evidence to the defense. Now, Jones was on a hospital's video footage walking his dog at the time of the murder. Coincidentally, footage of Garrett headed home was also captured by a second video camera at the same hospital. So, and it's true that John Jones and, and, uh, was in fairly close proximity to the murder scene, and and Nick Hillary was in close proximity to the murder scene at roughly the same time. The difference being, Nick Hillary is seen pulling out of this parking lot, uh, and he supposedly was going there to watch a soccer match, but he didn't get out of his vehicle. It looked like looks the weather looks kind of bad, like it might be raining. But then Garrett Phillips is skateboarding, so and John Jones is out walking his dog, so it doesn't seem to be raining that hard. And uh, if it's raining at all, while John Jones is just innocently out, seemingly innocently, innocently out walking his dog, and if somebody says, "Who takes their dog to a murder to go commit a murder?" Uh, by the way, uh, Gregory Bound was also known as G-Money, and he is black, as John Jones rightly figured out from his street name. So, good old racist John Jones. Uh, remarks 
in remarks reminiscent of statements from prosecuting attorney Scott Ellington after Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly took their Alfred plea, uh, the new DNA, there's a new DA in this, this case named Gary Pasqua, and in March 2019, he said his office was considering to consider new leads in the case after... Uh, I guess I'm not giving away too much at this point. If you've listened this far, you might figure out that Nick Hillary was not found guilty. Uh, the case is considered ongoing, though it's clear that the new leads cited by nude sources aren't so new, apparently dating back to at least 2011. Uh, Pasqua himself said the tips were offered quite a while ago eight years is quite a while ago. Meanwhile, news coverage gave the appearance that the case was nearing some sort of breakthrough thanks to new leads. And we see this sort of thing in other cases, including, once again, the West Memphis 3 case where they there's talk, oh, there's new information coming out. And I'm not talking about back in 2011. I'm talking about in the last year or two with certain podcasters and so forth. They've got hot new information. And guess what? That hot new information just somehow never appears. Chief Mark Murray, who was the lead investigator of the Mark Murray, who was the lead investigator of the Phillips case, is now the chief of the police department in Potsdam, and he's named in an ongoing lawsuit from Hillary, who not so stupidly now knows he can't be tried again even if new evidence surfaces. The lawsuit claims his rights were violated blah, 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 alleging retaliatory prosecution, def defamation, and violation of the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Well, good luck with that one, Nick Hillary. Uh, let's hope it goes as well as O.J.'s civil case. There have been few moments more heartbreaking in true crime documentaries than Tandy Cyrus's reaction to the verdict on her son's accused killer. Uh, <coughs> Tandy Cyrus wisely chose not to cooperate with filmmakers. Now, they did have a family representative, Garrett's uncle, Brian Phillips, and Brian Phillips gives a very worthy expression of the family's attitudes and beliefs about Nick Hillary's guilt in this case. Uh, and I would say that uh, Liz Garbus handled him handled them and handled handled the other side respectfully it just it's just obvious where her uh, beliefs lie in this case uh, police and prosecutors have their say often very effectively but ultimately the filmmakers decisions are with the accused to be sure director Liz Garbus offers special thanks to the Cyrus and Phillips families in the closing credits. Does she imagine, imagine the families really appreciate being thanked for, by someone who is so clearly opposed to their interest? Just a second.